0: And good evening, everybody.
1: The Bible says, those who persevere to the end will be saved. You're almost there. Okay. So next week will be our last week. And um, for those of you that have not been a part of our teachings over the years, if you're in for a real treat next week, the rest of you, you know what you're going to hear already. It's my favorite teaching. It's... um Probably done more to open people's eyes to how the Bible works than anything that I've ever shared before. So uh, we'll do that next week. And uh, tonight we're finishing up uh, the Isaiah songs. So as we have seven songs of Isaiah, we've, uh, a couple weeks ago, we did the first three Emmanuel songs that were referring to his birth. <clears throat> and then we did Isaiah 40. Last week, which was uh, preceding these servant songs. And just as I said, it was about John the Baptist in Isaiah 40. And he represents the Spirit. And the Spirit always comes before the Word. Uh, then from 40 uh, tonight, starting in chapter 42, we're going to hear about the Word. The Word of God. We're going to see these prophecies about our Savior uh, happen. <laughs> so... I'm going to refer a little bit to chapter 41, and then we'll pick up our first song in chapter 42. Let's open in a word of prayer. Our Father and our God, we come to you tonight in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, with our Bible, which is our guide, it's our light, Lord. It a, it's a, shows us, Lord, what we need to know, uh, reveals you to us, and Lord, we're so thankful for it. So bless us tonight, Lord, in a way that we can know about you better, learn about you, love you better. And Lord, just ask you again just to forgive us our sins through your great mercy. We pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so in chapter 41, so obviously that immediately follows the chapter 40 that we just completed, I want to draw your attention real quick, starting in verse 24, and if you have a new King James like I do, you'll see it starts with the word indeed. Now that word indeed is the Hebrew word hain, which is the same word that gets translated uh, and as uh, that we see in chapter 40 with those beholds. We had the word behold many, many times. So the first word of 24 and the first word of 29 is that same word. Here it gets translated indeed, but it's the same word behold. And the reason why I want to bring that up is because I think uh, Isaiah has this rhythm going that gets interrupted by the fact that in chapter 40 it's translated behold, in chapter 42 it's translated behold, and then in chapter 41 it's translated indeed. So if we look at this word and give it its behold meaning, we just where we were told by the third voice in chapter 40 to behold our God. And it told us how he created the heavens, he stretched them out like a curtain, he sits above the circle of the earth, all the nations of the earth are like a drop in the bucket to him. Um, how he, uh, as mankind, tries to set up governments and make these governments last forever, he just simply blows upon the ones he disapproves of and they disappear. And And all these different areas to behold. And then in verse... In chapter 41, he starts, the end of chapter 41, he starts questioning why mankind creates idols. And I shared with you John Calvin's thought on idols, he said, the human mind is an idol factory. We're always creating idols in our minds. And so, in attacking these idols, we pick it up in chapter 41, verse 24, with the word behold. Speaking of these idols, he says, behold, you are nothing, and your work is nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. I have raised up one from the north, and he shall come. From the rising of the sun he shall call on my name, and he shall come against princes as though mortar, as the potter treads clay. Who has declared from the beginning that we may know, and former times that we may say, he is righteous? Surely there is no one who shows. Surely there is no one who declares. Surely there is no one who hears your words. The first time I said to Zion, look, there they are. And I will give to Jerusalem one who brings good tidings. For looked, for I looked, and there was no man. I looked among them, but there was no counselor. Who, when I asked of them, could answer a word? Behold, he's talking about the idols. He says, behold, they are worthless. Their works are nothing. Their molded images are wind and confusion. So chapter 40, we're told to behold our God. Chapter 41, he says, behold what you use to replace me. They're absolutely worthless. They come to nothing. They have no wisdom or power or anything. Their works are nothing. Uh, They cause wind and confusion and all of that. And then that brings us to uh, our next behold that starts chapter 42. Behold my servant. Whom I uphold. You see the capital S there, hopefully, in your Bible? Okay, these are prophecies of Jesus. So, after bringing up idols, he now wants us to behold his servant, and it's going to be Jesus that we uh, read about here. So he says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. You see his emotion towards his son? What do we read in the New Testament about his emotion towards his son? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. He says on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved son. He says at Jesus' baptism. So there's a fascinating uh, way to study themes in the Bible. It's called the Principle of First Occurrences. And if you look at the first way a major theme is brought up in the Bible... You can use that as the model for how to understand that theme throughout the rest of Scripture. So love is a pretty important theme in the Bible, right? Where do you think the first time we hear that word love? With Abraham and Isaac, it takes 22 chapters to get to the word love in the Bible. And the verse is, Abraham, Abraham. He says, here I am. He says, take now your son, your only son, whom you love." Sacrifice him to me on the mountain of which I will show you. It's the first time we ever see love in the Bible As a father asked to sacrifice the son of his love to God now You see why that would be the way God wants us to understand that concept Because what's the major verse of all of scripture? for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, right? so Um, we see that concept of love. Now, it says, I have put my spirit upon him. Now, I put a a little fancy star next to that line because it's only seven words long. It's only seven words long. And you get the entire trinity in those seven words. Do you see him? you see the trinity there? Okay, who's doing the speaking? The Father, right? He's the I. I have put the third person of the Trinity, my spirit, upon the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, right? I put my spirit upon him. Where do we actually see that in Jesus' ministry that that happens? There's baptism, right? Comes down in the form of a dove. The Holy Spirit comes down in the form of a dove and rests upon Jesus. And if you remember back in the flood story, the first time Noah sent out a dove... It came back. and The Bible says it found no rest for the sole of its foot. And you won't see the dove rest until it rests upon Jesus at his baptism. Okay? So, he says, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. So he's very interested in justice, correct? He's very interested in justice. He will not cry out nor raise his voice. He would not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. That's foreshadowing his trial. Remember Pilate working very hard to get him to speak up? Okay, and he's also not a John the Baptist. In that John the Baptist will stand at the Jordan just screaming out for people to repent, right? John the Baptist was kind of that get on a soapbox and, 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 and preach the word, right? That wasn't Jesus, right? Jesus took people and he raised them up and he trained them. He was preparing them to write the Gospels, preparing them to witness after his death and all of that. So he will not cause his voice to be heard in the street. So this is kind of his um, universal scope. This is the universal scope of the ministry of Christ. He'll be baptized in the Spirit. He'll bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Now, if you were an 8th century B.C. Jewish person, do you know what this would sound like to you? That he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles? Be like, what happened here? Why doesn't it say Israel here? Why doesn't it say Jacob or Judah? What does this word Gentiles It'd be utterly shocking to them? Okay. And it's justice that he's interested in. And we have a lot of people crying out for justice nowadays, don't we? Okay. Just cries in the street for justice, justice, justice. We have a very interesting court case going on. We're waiting for the jury to speak in on that now, aren't we? Okay? And the whole idea is justice. And the whole idea is to create laws to systematically root out the evils of racism and things like that. Okay? Do you think there's a racist going, hey, if they change the law, then I'll change my heart? Does the law change your heart? No. Okay? This is saying Jesus will bring forth justice to the nations. The the, the oppressed... Are going to find that those who have received the gospel give them justice, right? Okay. I think people. I think people in Christianity underestimate still that the gospel is the answer. I do that. The gospel is the answer to all of this. Okay. Verse three. A bruised reed he will not break. In a smoking flax, he will not quench. Now, a bruised reed is very fragile, correct? You think this is really telling you how he treats reeds? He's talking about us, right? You ever feel like a bruised reed? You're about to break. You're about to snap. What does this say? He will not break. Okay. It's talking about his tenderness, A smoking flax he will not quench. Smoking flax is very close to being extinguished, right? Have you ever felt like that? Okay, it says a smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. It's only halfway through the third verse, and it's a second promise of justice through Jesus Christ, right? He'll bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. Is justice support here? It's a third mention already, correct? And the coastlands shall wait for his law. What would be very shocking to this original audience with that line? It's the coastlands. It's not Israel. Right? It's already talking about a Gentile ministry going on for him. All right. So the coastlands will wait for his law. Verse three verses. Verse four. I'm sorry, verse five. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out. Remember we talked about that last week? It's okay, the second time Isaiah in the 8th century BC is saying God stretches out the heavens. Okay, When did we find that out? 20th century AD. Right? 28 centuries later who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it. Here's why I love that, this line. He spread forth the earth and that which comes from it. What comes from the earth? Crops, right? Or food, right? I want you to think about something for a minute. Thinking about, think about what an amazing coincidence the unbeliever must think it is. That this random soil that just happens to be on our planet can grow potatoes and carrots and all these things that happen to have exactly what we require for our nourishment. Do you understand what a mammoth coincidence that would be if there's no God? And that they're just the right texture, that our teeth can bite through them so perfectly, and that our stomach acids can break it up so perfectly, and that our body will get rid of anything that's waste and and keep for our bloodstream anything that's nourishing. And if you believe in a godless beginning of the universe, you have way more faith than I have. I could never believe in that coincidence, that these things that the dirt can grow contains all the vitamins, that these random humans that just happen to evolve on top of this dirt happens to need the very nourishments that are coming from these these foods. It's absolutely ridiculous to see, to say that there's no design there. That that wasn't intentional. It's absolutely absurd to me. It's insulting, quite frankly, that they teach our children that. It's humiliating. Who gives breath to the people on it. So here he's saying, here's the God that's speaking to you. The heavens, which you cannot possibly catch a glimpse of anything outside of these heavens. He stretched them out. The earth, where all of the activity of human existence has taken place. He spread forth that earth and everything that comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it. So how does the the non-living become living? In a godless Big Bang where nothing has life and now there's so much life, what what was it chemically or whatnot that allowed non-living substance to become living substance? I call it the Frosty the Snowman problem. They have no magic hat, do they? There's nothing that allows the non-living to come to life, correct? What would that be? It's absurd to think about. First of all, they have to have everything come out of nothing. That's an unfathomable problem. Then they have to have non-life become life. Unfathomable problem. Okay? And he gives the spirit to those who walk on it. That's quite the introduction, isn't it? It's just trying to tell you what he said. He says, but I want you to know this about the one who's speaking, because you should give him the reverence and respect for what he says, because he created the heavens and stretched them out. He spread forth the earth and everything that comes from it. He gives breath to you who sit here tonight, and the spirit to those who walk upon this earth. He says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand." He's speaking to Jesus here and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. To open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. Now, we know the ministry of Christ, he certainly opened blind eyes, didn't he? Okay, now, he has a much bigger ministry of healing people that have no sight. And when he heals people that have no sight, there's a much bigger picture happening there. Because before our salvation, we don't have eyes to see, do we? We don't have ears to hear. We're we're deaf and we're blind. Okay? We don't have a heart to understand until so God enables our hearts for that. Do you remember when Jesus asked the apostles, who do people say that I am? And they are saying, some say you're Jeremiah, some say you're Elijah, some say you're another prophet, some say you're just a good teacher. And then the, to me, the most penetrating question ever asked follows. Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? Now, I don't believe there's any pop quizzes to get into heaven, but if there were, that would be the question I'd be studying the answer to. Who do I say Jesus is? I think that's the most essential question. And then Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now listen to what Jesus says about that answer. He basically says, you couldn't know that on your own. That had to be revealed to you by my Father in heaven. If you believe right now in this room that Jesus is the Christ, then God has visited your heart to enable you to conclude that. You could not know that any other way. You cannot. I don't care how many classes you take, how many books you read, I don't care what you do, You cannot conclude that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, without being saved. So if that's what you believe tonight, there's a hallelujah in your heart there somewhere. All right. So so when he opens blind eyes, do you know the Bible says there is no darkness in the presence of God, correct? Well, Jesus is God, correct? So what do you think he does when the blind show up around him? They're in darkness. And our Bible says there is no darkness in his presence. So he gives them light to their eyes, correct? So he's not just physically healing sight. He's also spiritually bringing them the knowledge of himself. He's bringing them from that darkness to that light. To bring out prisoners from the prison, do you think that's necessarily physical? Joseph will tell you he had to wait two years. Paul will tell you, Every time he got out, he went right back in again. Right? Peter 2. This is your prison of sin, bondage to sin. That's your prison cell. He's going to bring prisoners out from the prison to those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord. That is my name. See the all caps there? What is that all, all capital letters telling you about the word Lord there? That's his proper name that he gave to Moses at the burning bush. Okay? He says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another. Now, do you think that's selfishness on God's part? Why is it to your great benefit that he won't give his glory to another? What, what was he dealing with in chapter 41? We give his glory to others, don't we? And he's trying to say That's useless. There's nothing they can do with that glory. They cannot help you in any shape, manner, or form. Okay? So for our well-being, he says, I will give my glory to no other. My glory stays with me because that's where your life is and where your health is. Nor will I give my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass and new things I declare before they spring forth I tell you of them. So two things. He says, new things I declare. So Solomon, in all of his wisdom, he, he writes the book of Ecclesiastes, which is a fascinating book. He writes the book of Ecclesiastes, and he pretty much says this. I have been given the greatest wisdom anybody's ever going to get, and I've been given the greatest riches anybody's going to get. Here's what I'm going to do with this wisdom and this, these riches. I'm going to investigate every matter under heaven. Because I have the wisdom to do it, and I have the monetary means to do it, right? More than any person that I'll ever live, I'm equipped to do that. So I'm going to investigate all these matters under heaven. And he checks labor and love and all these different categories. And he investigates them. And time and time he concludes, it's all vanity of vanities a chasing after the wind. And how does he express his utter frustration with the way the world works? He says there is nothing new under the sun. But Jesus says one greater than Solomon is here. And he says, Behold, I make all things new. Right? Make it all new. Here he says, And new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Can you name any other religion that has any other person in it that tells you the future so that when it happens, you know that he's the true God? Do you know if, if you took a poll of world religions, and said, which one of your religious founders told you what would happen before it ever happened? It would just be the Jew and the Christian. They'll go, me, it's me. That's what my leader does, right? He tells me stuff before it happens, so when it happens, I know that he is indeed the true prophet. In fact, what did God say was the way to know a true prophet? It's quite simple. His prophecy will come true. It doesn't come true. He's a false prophet, right? So what about this one? God tells Hezekiah, get your stuff together. You're going to die. And Hezekiah says, Lord, please remember the good that I've done and all this and, and everything. And as Isaiah is leaving the temple, God says to Isaiah, you know what? Go back and tell Hezekiah this. Tell him I've heard his crying. I saw his tears. And I'm going to give him 15 more years. Now, he gave him a prophecy of his immediate death, and it didn't come to pass. Right? There was a prophecy of his immediate death that did not come to pass. Okay. So, is Isaiah a false prophet? Hezekiah is brought to us to resemble Jesus Christ. And so when a prophet tells you the Lord says you're going to die, you are as good as dead, aren't you? In fact, the book of Hebrews says Isaac was as good as dead because he was to be sacrificed. Yet he never died, but he was as good as dead. It says Abraham's body was as good as dead because he was 100 years old and he couldn't have kids. Sarah's womb was as good as dead because she was 90 and couldn't have kids. But God brought life out of all that death. Okay? And because Abraham knew that God brought Isaac out of his dead body, he knew if I sacrificed him, God has the power to bring him back. And he must do it because he promised me that Isaac would have many offspring that start a nation. He can't do that dead. right? So when Hezekiah is granted 15 more years, he's technically back from the dead. You see how God's showing the work of Christ through that. There's resurrection, right? It's technically a resurrection. He was as good as dead and he's back. So, all right, so that's Servant Song number one. Wait, I have some more notes here. So, The Danger of Idols. This talks about the danger of idols. And I just want to refer you real quick to Psalm 135. And, um,. Verse 15 to 18 says, the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. What did he just say? When you have an idol in your life, you become utterly useless. Utterly useless. Okay. It's powerful language against the idols. Second Kings 18, 1 through 5. Yeah, I want to point this one out. This one's. This is Hezekiah again. This is one of what why Hezekiah was such a great king. Hezekiah, uh 2 Kings 18. First five verses. It came to pass in the third year of Hoshea the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden image, and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. Remember that bronze serpent? Okay, this actually tells you they named it. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. Nehushtan. Okay? He trusts... So... so Moses made this serpent during the wilderness wanderings approximately 1400 B.C. This This is in the 700s B.C. 700 years later, they still have that serpent. And they're burning incense to it, and they made it an idol. You See why John Calvin said our minds are idol factories? Now, they make it an idol. So what, is, what, does, um, what does Hezekiah do with that? Well, let me go back to it. So what does he do with that? It says, he trusted in the Lord God of Israel, this is verse 5, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. Actually, I think it tells you, uh, let's see. Oh, it says he broke in pieces, I'm sorry, this is verse 4. He broke in pieces the bronze servant, serpent. Now, the word for broke there is in in Hebrew, in this intensive case, Called the PL stem, this intensive case that suggests that it's a repetitive behavior intensified. So, broke is not really an intensive word. Some of your versions will say the word pulverized. He pulverized this serpent. It's the same word used of what Moses did to the idol that Aaron made when, when Moses came down the mountain with the Ten Commandments. He pulverized it, right? So, he, he makes it like dust. So in other words, Hezekiah here, as I told you, he becomes a Christ figure, and then he has a death sentence that he comes back from, like a resurrection. Well, here, he crushes the head of what? The serpent. Does that sound familiar? Okay, That's the Genesis 3.15 prophecy about the, the one who will be born of the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, right? So here he crushes the head of the serpent. Who else does that in the Old Testament that becomes a Christ figure? That was done by David because Goliath is described to us as multiple times he's described as being in the animal kingdom. He will say to David when David approaches him with a slingshot, he says, am I a dog that you come after me with sticks, right? So isn't mankind given dominion over the animals and doesn't David say that his credibility to fight Goliath comes from the fact that he's, taking, he's taken on the lion and the bear. And he's able to defeat the lion and the bear. And this Philistine will be like one of them. So he understands his dominion over the animal world that God gave to Adam and Eve, correct? He understands that. So when Goliath says, am I a dog? He's probably like, I'm really glad that you said that, actually. okay. But even more telling is we're told that Goliath is dressed in scale armor. What has scales? serpent. And what does David do to this serpent-like giant? He crushes his head. He puts a stone right in his forehead, and then he takes Goliath's sword and beheads him with it, right? So he crushes the head of the serpent. It's all pointing us to Jesus. All right, that's our first servant song. Let's go to our second servant song. That's in chapter 49. Chapter 49, starting in verse 1, says, listen, O coastlands, to me. What would be shocking about the first line? It's coastlands, right? It's not Israel. And take heed, you peoples from afar. There it is again, right? The peoples from afar. What are we to take heed about? The Lord, this is Jesus doing the speaking, by the way. Jesus says this, the Lord has called me from the womb. Do You see the capital M in me, indicating it's Jesus. The Lord has called me from the womb. From the matrix of my mother, he has made mention of my name. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me. And made me like a polished shaft. In his quiver, he has hidden me. What do you put in a quiver? Arrows. So he's made like a sword. Now that's a short-range weapon, right? For immediate battle right in front of you. And he's made them like an arrow. It's a long-range weapon, right? So some feel it's referring to Jews up close and Gentiles from afar. And he said to me, You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain. You ever feel like that? Okay, I can't tell you in 25 years of teaching teenagers how many of those days I went home and and felt like, why am I bothering again? Why did I, why do I keep showing up to think 17-year-olds are going to be like, teach me Jesus, teach me Jesus? Okay. But what does this say? It says Jesus felt that way. Didn't he say this to his apostles? How long have I been with you and you still don't understand? Right? He look at Nicodemus, go, You're the teacher of Israel, and you don't get this stuff? Right? Surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. This is why you never feel frustrated with your ministry. Your reward is with the Lord, isn't it? Okay. So if I'm looking for the students for my reward, I'm going to get frustrated. If I know that my reward is with the Lord and my work is with my God, there's your perseverance and your endurance, right? There's your refreshment. And now the Lord says who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel is gathered to him, for I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Now, here he says, what I do on the earth, I'm going to be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and the Lord will be my strength. He goes from that excitement, from serving his father that way, but what's part of that ministry? My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Now, why am I pointing that out? Because I think it is so healthy for us to realize how serious sin is. Look what we're doing to this divine relationship with our sin. He says, I will be glorious in the eyes of the Lord. God will say multiple times about Jesus on the earth, this is my beloved son. And when he actually takes on our sin, we hear, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Verse 6. Indeed, he says, this is the father speaking to the son. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. Listen, if I give you, get you to rescue all the tribes of Jacob because of who you are, that's too small a thing for you. So what else is he going to do? He says, and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. He says, I'll also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Okay, So it's too small a thing. Listen, God had the sacrificial system. He had the Levitical priesthood. He had all that for, to get Israel back. But now when he sends his son, he says, that's too small for you. Okay, I'm going to give you as a light to the Gentiles that you will be my salvation to the very ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, verse 7, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises. Isn't that amazing? The Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, and it says, who they despise. Who they despise. To him whom the nation abhors. These are strong words of hatred, aren't they? Whom the nation abhors. To the servant of rulers. Listen to this now. The servant of who? He's going to become the servant of rulers. Look at the next verse. Kings shall see and arise. Princes also shall worship because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and he has chosen you, Jesus. He's chosen you. Now, this goes from Jesus will be a servant of rulers to those rulers will see and arise and worship him. He's the king of kings, right? But he looks a lot like a servant, doesn't he? Okay? So how does this work? Well, one of my favorite pictures in the Bible comes from Matthew's gospel, where in Matthew 2, the Magi ask King Herod a question, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? And the next verse doesn't answer where he's born, where he's at. In fact, you don't get a clear answer to where the king of the Jews is until Jesus has a sign put above his head on the cross that says, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And now we see, oh, he's the king of the Jews. That's where he is. But how does he look on that cross? Is he wearing a king's robe? Is he dressed in a gold crown? Is he being worshipped and honored? Are, Are people bowing at his feet? The last people that were at his feet drove nails through him. He's cut up and bloodied. So much that we're going to see in the next servant song that he's unrecognizable as a human being from that beating. And when the the Magi ask, where is he who's been born king? We don't get a picture of who's that king until you see this beaten, bloodied man hanging naked on a cross. And I think that's a perfect time to reveal that he's the king. Because now... It truly is going to test your heart, isn't it? Can you worship that guy as your king? That beaten, bloodied guy that's about to take his last breath. Can you see him as your king? It's a test of the heart, isn't it? Okay? Because the last time they chose a king based on appearance, it was Saul. How well did that go? And then Samuel, the prophet of God, goes to a man who has eight kids, eight sons, looks at the first seven and goes, oh, I can see that. And when it's none of them, he's told the shepherd boy that you're looking at out the window there. Really? Yeah. Because I'm not looking at the outward appearance. I'm looking at the heart. And the only one here who has the heart of a king is the shepherd out there. So Jesus comes as a shepherd, doesn't he? And he's announced as a king When he looks like the biggest victim about to be executed. These are all tests of your heart. Can you worship this one? Because people have worshipped the ones wearing the gold crowns, right? Can you worship the one wearing a thorny crown? Okay. It's a test of the heart. Chapter 50, our third servant song. We're going to start in verse 4. Chapter 50, verse 4. This is the voice of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity from heaven. He says, This, the Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. So Jesus went through years of learning, didn't he? What did Luke 2.52 tell us? He grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. People are like, how could he start as somebody who has to learn? Well, let me back you up a, little, a couple years before that. He started in a womb, the God of heaven. Restricted himself to the birth canal of a woman, didn't he? The omnipresent God was found in a birth canal. Isn't that amazing? And he wakens my ear to hear as the learned. Verse five: "The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. So now we know God whispers something in His ear. He says, "He opened my ear, He told me something, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away." I like the virgin say, "Nor did I turn my back." Because the next line says, but I gave my back to those who strike me. So what did God whisper in his ear? You're going to be the sacrifice. Jesus will say in one of the Psalms to his father, sacrifice an offering you don't desire, but rather a body you prepare for me. You hear this understanding that he's going to have to take on human flesh and be reduced to being sacrificed like an animal for our sins. He says, I didn't turn my back, but I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. So how do we identify this servant? How are we going to know who this servant is? Well, these are the three levels of cruelty you've got to see and the one claiming to be the servant of God. This servant is going to be whipped. He's going to have his beard hair pulled out of his face by hand. And he'll be spat upon. Isn't this incredibly detailed? Incredibly detailed. I mean, it's one thing for Nostradamus to say, I saw a building burning. And you go, okay, so have I, right? You can be very generalized with your prophecies and at some point somebody's going to go, oh, there's the fulfillment. But try to get this detailed in your prophecy. Okay, If there's a soldier who doesn't spit on the face of Christ, then he can't be the Messiah. He's got to meet all these details. For the Lord God will help me, therefore I'll not be disgraced. Do you understand he just talked about being whipped? Bad enough. But then he also has his beard hair pulled out, which was a huge shame for a Jewish man not to be bearded. And then he's going to be spat upon, which is really the ultimate disgrace you can go through, isn't it? To receive somebody's spittle in your face is degrading. And after that, he says what? God will help me, so I will not be disgraced. Okay. Do you understand? That's all you need for God to be with you. Remember all the talks of justice? Do you understand that's where your justice is, is God being with you? Okay? Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. Okay, flint was a, a stone that they had back then. He set his face like this towards the cross. You know, today's language we say this. He put his game face on. You know, he has that look on his face that I will not turn back or fail here. It's what he did towards the cross. And I know that I will not be ashamed because he who is near justifies me. So who will contend with me? I have God on my side. Who wants to rise up against me now? Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who's my adversary? Let him come near me. Surely the Lord God will help me. Who is he that will condemn me? Indeed, they will grow old like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Can you imagine... Contending against somebody, and he says, You are no match for the moth because God is on my side. The moth will take you down because God is on my side. All right, verse 10 Who among you fears the Lord? Who obeys the voice of his servant? That's a very penetrating question today. Who obeys the voice of Jesus? Who walks in darkness and has no light, let him trust in the name of the Lord. There's a call to people walking in darkness to trust in the Lord. Now watch the irony of the next verse. Look, all you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourself with sparks. This is man-made light, right? It's not the light of God. This is man-made light. Walk in the light of your fire and in the sparks you have kindled. This you will have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. You want to deny the light of Christ and create your own light in this world? you'll lie down in torment. He's the light of the world. He's the light of the world. Chapter 52, our final servant song. We will pick it up in verse 13. With another, behold, now, this to me is the most severe behold in the entire Bible. God the Father doing the speaking. Behold, my servant. How do you identify the servant? By the cruelty indoors, correct? The cruelty indoors marks the identity of the servant. Uh, sorry, the servant, not the servant. The servant. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He should be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any other. Man and his form more than the sons of men. Your visage is your appearance from the neck up. And what to say about Jesus from the neck up? Marred more than any man. And his form, that's from the neck down, is your form, more than the sons of men. This is the beating that he took. So shall he sprinkle many nations with what? This blood. Have you been sprinkled with his blood? That's your atonement, right? Okay. I've heard people evangelize by inviting them to be covered with the blood of the Lamb. Do you think that's an attractive way to deal with a non believer? My goodness. That would freak me out if you approached me that way. Right? Okay. Kings shall shut their mouths on account of him. So if you walked into a king's presence, you were not allowed to speak unless you were spoken to you just can't walk in there and start a conversation. He's got to invite you to speak. So you had to shut your mouth on account of the king because of his majesty. You just can't walk in there and start speaking. This says kings will shut their mouths on account of him. So what is it identifying him as? The King of Kings. For what they had not been told they shall see and what they had not heard they shall consider. But who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. Does that sound like a future defeater of Satan? It's remarkable how tender he grows up. Do you know that confounded the friends of his family? They'd say, isn't this Jesus of Nazareth? Don't, Don't we know his parents? What are these great claims that we know his parents? Right? What if your neighborhood kid said, oh, I'm the Messiah. You'd be like, I saw you grow up, man. You ain't no Messiah. That's what Jesus was going through. right? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He had no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. So in our terms, he was not six foot four, blonde hair, blue eyes, six pack abs. The only one who could actually choose his appearance chose not to be attractive. Think of that when you're spending all that time in front of your mirror. The only one who could choose his appearance chose not to be attractive. Yet, thousands followed him. And more people would die for him today than any world leader that ever lived. And He chose to not be attractive. Imagine that. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. What are you acquainted with? Your Lord was acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. Can you imagine walking down the street and people did this when you came by? They hid their faces because they didn't want to make eye contact with you. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Keep that in mind. We did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs. Now the key to these next verses are the pronouns. Pay attention to these pronouns. And you'll see the utter unfairness that Jesus is willing to endure on our behalf. He has borne our griefs. That's not fair, is it? He carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him. You notice the last verse says we did not esteem him. Now it says we did esteem him. But how did we esteem him? Stricken. Smitten by God and afflicted. They thought he was cursed by God. Why did they think he was cursed by God? He's cursed as every man that hangs on a tree. He's hanging on a tree, isn't he? So is he cursed by God? Paul will say he became sin. He didn't become a sinner. He became sin. That's why God forsook him on that cross. But he was wounded, he was wounded. Why? Our transgressions, because we can't stop sinning. So he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. By his stripes, we are healed. Yet all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We all go our own ways. And the Father laid it upon his Son, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Pilate tried very hard to get him to open his mouth, didn't he? Why do you not defend yourself? Don't you know I have the authority of life and death over you. Jesus finally opened his mouth and said, you don't have that authority. You have it because my father gave it to you. Right? He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment and who will declare his generation? He's going to die childless, it seems, with no legacy, right? He's just dying with just his mother and one friend there. So who's going to declare his generation? That's how desperate this looks on that Friday evening. Isn't it amazing that there's billions that are declaring his generation today? And there have been for Thousands of years now. But that Friday night, you'd have to ask, who's going to declare his generation? It looks like nobody. There's his aged mother and one loyal friend because the rest couldn't bother to be here because they're so scared. Who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken and they have made his grave with the wicked. He's dying with two criminals. So, the plan would be that these three people being executed are going to be thrown over this garbage dump cliff called Gehenna, which Jesus symbolizes hell with because it's such an awful place. But it's where they would throw criminal corpses and garbage and things like that and burn it. And it would be a massive stench, there'd be flies everywhere. There'd be worms all over it. So, so when Jesus says it's where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, he's pointing to that, that heap where criminals are burned, and maggots are, but those maggots die, right? And the fire goes out for a time. But he says if you're not in him, you're going somewhere where the maggot doesn't die and the fire is not quenched. He's, he's referring them to that picture that they're so disgusted with called Gehenna. That's the grave he was assigned. He's being executed as a criminal. But it says now, but he was with the rich at his death. What fulfilled that prophecy? Joseph of Arimathea, the rich man that offered his tomb to Jesus, spared him Gehenna. Now this is a prophecy that has to be fulfilled or he can't claim to be the Messiah. And is he prearranging some rich man to show up and offer his tomb? Can you imagine trusting the Lord that much? He puts his head down and dies not knowing or having any human reason to know that he's not going to be buried in Gehenna. He's not going to be burned in the garbage heap. But 700 plus years earlier, it was spoken by God's prophet That he'll be with the rich at his death. Why? Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. So that's how God's judging this, right? He's not wicked. There's no deceit in his mouth. There's no violence in him. So he'll be with the rich at his death until I raise him. Verse 10 is the hard one. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him and put him to grief. What do we just say about the father's emotions towards his son this whole time? So what in the world could please the Lord to bruise him? Well, it says, when you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. It just said earlier, who will declare his generation? Now it says he'll see his seed. So what seed is he going to see? You, me, he shall prolong his days. How do you you give us the picture of a man dying on a cross and then say he'll prolong his days? You got to understand, this is before they understood anything about resurrection. Because right now you're going, well, he'll rise, he'll rise. But imagine being Isaiah trying to explain all this. The miracle that would have to be done for this to become true has been done, hasn't it? He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It goes from all those beatings and graves with the wicked to pleasing the Lord and prospering in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. You just said he was going to be buried. Now you're saying he's going to see the labor of his soul. He's going to see you as the fruit of dying on a cross. And he'll be satisfied. Isn't that good to know? By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. Don't we all wish it could say all there? For he shall bear their iniquities. therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. What spoil? It's treasure. But it's not treasure you find, it's treasure you get how? In pirate terms, they call it booty, right? It's treasure that you, 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 you get by defeating your enemy, right? You, you, you take it from them. It's saying we're that spoil. So in other words, we were taken from an enemy. It's saying we were Satans. And Jesus just crushed the head of the serpent on the cross. And we become the spoil, Because he poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many. And made intercession for the transgressors. And that's where the song ends. And if we went into it. And we did go into chapter 54. Earlier in the class. Where I taught you about the Ethiopian eunuch. Remember that? And the next chapter starts with, sing, O Baron," right? It's what the eunuch was reading when he was riding in his chariot. Okay? Now, we should never look at a cross and remain unmoved. If you look at a cross, you should be remembering Isaiah 52 and 53. I think the cross has become such common jewelry that it doesn't really move us anymore. But everything that's important to you hangs on that cross and the work that was accomplished there. That simple vertical beam with a horizontal beam crossing it, that simple shape bought you back from hell. And our ability to appreciate that I think is directly related to how much you'll enjoy your Lord and feel his love for you. Because that beaten, bloodied man hanging on the cross is your king. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you Lord, and I'm sorry that every single time my prayer sounds like this, Lord, I I want to mean it, and I want you to know that I mean it. Just thank you for dying on a cross for us. Thank you for your tremendous love for us, Lord. Thank you for giving your son, Lord, your greatest part of your heart you gave for us so that we should never question your love. Lord, may we never look at a cross again and remain unmoved. We send up that prayer to you through Jesus Christ, our mediator. Amen. Amen.
2: The very first question, we only got one question from the online audience tonight, Bill. Uh, So we'll start with that one and then we'll go uh, around the room here. So the question reads, does God love everyone equally? It seems that in the Old Testament, God hates his enemies and the enemies of his people. I understand we're under a new covenant, but he is the same God. I
1: struggle with this. Yeah. Um, I don't think he hates anything but what his enemies do. He hates what they're doing. Um, because I think you would all agree that if if any of them turn from those ways, they're going to experience his love, Right. It's not like he's hating what they do, and if they said, okay, I'll stop, that he would say, no, you're still you, and I hate you, right? So um, I think he hates what he does and invites them to not do it anymore. In fact, um, I was reading in Ezekiel, I think it's 33, a very amazing chapter about, I think that's the potter and the clay one that Paul refers to in Romans 9 and he and he's telling uh Ezekiel you know if I'm if I'm forming this clay and it's he he says look at the potter watch this potter and the potter forms some clay and it's not turning out well so he smashes it up starts over and builds something nice he says if the potter can do that with clay don't you think I can do that with you he says if you turn from your evil ways i'll make you into something good okay type of thing so you see the relationship between our obedience and our response to him and what he'll do with us in there. So, And, and he finishes that passage by, by pleading with Israel to turn. He says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Okay, So I don't think he's hating the wicked. He's hating what they do. He literally says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So um, he's, he, he pleads for them to turn. If they turn, don't you know for sure that they'll experience his love? So I wouldn't say he he hates his enemies. In fact, even David, who's a man after God's own heart, we're told, correct? In Psalm 139, when he's singing all these praises to God, and you see how deeply he loves God through the things that he's celebrating about God, he then rises up and says, just kill all your enemies. He goes, don't I hate them with an exceeding hatred, God? I hate those who hate you. And then the very next verse, he says, and show me any mistakes I'm making right now. God. Okay? So he's like, I really hate those who hate you, but I might be wrong for doing that, so feel free to correct me if, if you need to on that. So, um, yeah, I wouldn't say it, it's, they're just, he just hates the people. He hates what they do, and he's willing to give them love if they repent.
2: Excellent. Uh, thank you, Pastor Bill. Why don't we open it up to our in-person audience? Do we have any questions this evening? Sure. John, right up here in the middle. Thank you guys for uh, coming.
3: I would like to know how Jewish scholars view Isaiah 52 and 53. Do they, what do they say that p- those passages mean? And are the words that are capitalized with respect to God, you know, him, are they capitalized in the original Jewish? In the Hebrew? Yeah.
1: Um, so, th- to the best of my knowledge and what I've seen, they just simply speak of it as somebody still coming. That's just a coming person, um, unfulfilled at the present time. And um, what's fascinating to me is uh, Diana and I were in New York City, I don't know how many years ago, many years ago, and outside of our hotel, there's this there there was this protest going on and people driving around with Israeli flags and with Palestinian flags. And I don't know what was going on in the world at the time, but they were lining up on the streets and the cops literally had uh, the, the Jewish people on one side and like the, the Palestinian people on the other side. And I was like, ooh, I want to go talk to them. So I go up to a Jewish guy and uh, he told me what was going on. I still don't really know what was going on. But I asked him, what he thought about Jesus. And, um, and he, I promise you, didn't know hardly anything about Jesus needed to ask me about Jesus. Just shocked me to no end because they consider him a prophet. And I said, well, you know, Isaiah and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, not Jesus. No, not really. No. Uh, it just confounded me. And so I brought up Isaiah 52, 53, and I said, "Look at all these details, and this these actually happened to Jesus." It's like, "Wow, that's coincidence." Oh, no, it's not coincidence, you know. And it was just confounding to me. It's like they hide it from them; they don't teach it to them. They don't teach them that even the hey, here's one of your prophets, and here's you know what it says here, you know, here in the anything Old Testament. They're just not going to ever point to Jesus. They'll never direct their students to Jesus with these Old Testament verses. So I think if they saw in the Gospels uh, just how often these Jewish writers are pointing back to these verses going, see, see what just happened and see how this was prophesied. I think if they were brought there, it'd be very hard for them to not recognize that. But that just, and this is an old man. This is like a guy in his seventies. And I remember he gave me a card with uh, another old Jewish man on. I remember the long white beard on his picture and he said he'll know all things. I was like, "Well, who is he?" He's, like, He's coming, like just like almost like the Samaritan woman, like somebody's coming that'll tell us all things. And so I'm like, "You have his picture. Somebody took his picture. He should be here already, then, right?" So it was just very confounding to me that whole experience.
3: I've been to several messianic temples for their services, and they're really amazing. There's uh, such joy in their, in their service. They get up and they dance. They, they dance before the Lord. Uh, they sing. They refer to themselves as, as a completed Jew because they've got it all. And it, it's an amazing thing to watch, to go to uh, one yeah. of their services.
1: They are completed Jews. Yeah. They have a lot to sing about and to dance about. Um, I've had a few Messianic Jewish students in my classes and I always tell them, you know, you've got the greatest family tree. You know, My family tree is Joe and Ted and Steve. Yours is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you know, and um, just an amazing family tree. I would love to be a Messianic Jew. I would love to have that heritage, those stories, those prophets, and all of that. And um, instead I have Mussolini, you know. Um, I would love to have their heritage. I, 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 I would, they should be singing and dancing. I think that's incredible joy for them. Uh, to recognize their Savior, that they recognize that the fulfillment of their scriptures is uh, amazing.
3: But They're also considered outcast by the fellow Jews. Of course. A lot of them do not accept it and do, do not want to even deal with them.
1: No, absolutely not. Which is not. very sad. Well, look how the Jewish community treated the apostles and Jesus and all of that. I mean, no, yeah, absolutely not. Um, they're declaring that the destruction of the temple in 70 AD was the end of Judaism. And they need to leave that Judaism and they need to accept the Messiah. They need to accept the Lord. So, um, you know, when Paul said, God's not done with the Jew yet, and I'm living proof, I'm Jewish. God reached out to me on the road to Damascus. They're a part of Paul's story there, that God's not done with them. And they're that remnant that God is saving. Uh, One of the, I think it's Isaiah. It actually talks about through, through God, not being a God of the Jews, now a God of the Gentiles, he mentions literally 10% of a remnant that he'll still be working with, and so they would represent that. You know, They'd be a part of that tremendously small minority there uh, of the saved. Like I said, I think singing and dancing, I think, I, you know, I'm not a singer or a dancer, but I think Christian churches should look more like that for sure, you know.
2: I think there is a YouTube video of you dancing, Bill, a couple of years ago. You want to tell that story while John cues up the next question? No. Okay, John, next question. Do we have any other questions in, in the audience?
4: Not so much a question, but uh, a response to that last question. Many of the rabbis have made out Isaiah 52 and 53. Um the suffering servant to be the people. They're trying to make that out to be the people. Um, yeah. They're twisting, you know, the words. And it's very difficult because not only is that uh, stigma laid upon people that believe you know, and come to faith uh, from the community, you know, but, you know, just imagine... Being in a situation, and you should be in a situation when you read the word, you know, yeah. that all of a sudden you understand the word. Right. You know, That's right. As opposed to having to scramble to twist it to some other form.
1: Right. And, and they'll point to a um, passage we read tonight um, in chapter 49, verse 3, where it says, He said to me, You are my servant, O Israel. So they'll say, yeah, this is everything that follows, all these beatings and everything is what the Jewish people are going to experience because it says, oh, Israel. But it doesn't differentiate to, um, well, certainly they don't look at the Jewish men that wrote the New Testament's claim that this is fulfilled in our friend Jesus and here's how and why. And also that um, it's, hard to, it's hard to ignore the very personal nature of, I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. You know it's very individualized um, and that God is mentioning in of his uh, his son um, he was pleased to bruise um, his son and um, so I, I think that verse that I just read has a big play in what Rick just said is they'll, they'll point to that verse and see see it's Israel that this is point to But the next verse says, "And then he said to me." So it becomes individual to the me again. Right after that,
2: we got a question over here, Bill.
0: Yeah, the first one is being like a. I was talking to a Jewish man at school. He's a rabbi, and the topic came up about being a descendant of Abraham. And I said, "I'm a descendant of Abraham, but I'm an Ishmaelite." I said, "I'm the wrong son." And later, he actually came back to me. He was like, "He's like, I'm very like surprised that you would say that." He's like, "Because I was." He said that I was right for saying that. So I don't know if that was a compliment or an insult. It was like, you are the wrong son, but at least yeah. you understand. <laughs> and I'm there thinking, yeah, but I'm grafted onto the tree of Abraham. Yeah. But there is a lot of like, pride and joy coming from that line. Yeah. Uh, this is more so, this question is like kind of a teaser, I guess, if no one else has any questions. You started off uh, this uh, teaching by saying that next week is like a really anticipated people for those who understand or those who know. I'm still fairly new, so what are we expecting next week?
1: You've never heard that teaching?
0: It depends what it is. I don't know. Um, You you just said it was really exciting.
1: That teaching. (laughs) You know, Um, probably. (laughs) um, I'm going to walk you through the Old Testament tabernacle item by item and show you how it's specifically pointing to the ministry of Christ. Um, And as we get to the end of that tabernacle journey... Uh, the single greatest picture I've ever seen in the Bible will appear. And um, I remember uh, probably about 10 years ago now, uh, I taught it uh, from the pulpit of Calvary, Fort Lauderdale. And as I was getting to that final picture, I could hear a couple rows of people in front of me who caught where I was going before I actually got out of my mouth, like seconds before I got out of my mouth. And I could hear them audibly gasp. I could hear them actually go, oh, like that. And it stunned me. And I just kind of looked up and it put a lump in my throat that made it hard for me to continue because I knew their eyes were just open to something really cool. And it was almost hard for me to to, to get it out of my mouth. Um, But that's the experience I had the first time I encountered it. Um, More than anything else I've ever heard in 25 years of studying the Bible, this is the thing that made me go this is so real and so true. This was the single greatest moment on there. So, um, you know, so if you can't make it, sorry, but you know,
2: (laughs) we will see you next Wednesday at seven o'clock, same channel, same place. See you guys then. Thank you so much.